15 seconds. Guidance is internal. 10, 9, ignition sequence start. Space nuts. 5, 4, 3, 2, 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 5, 4, 3, 2, 1. Space nuts. Astronauts report it feels good. Hello, how are you? Nice to have your company here on the Space Nuts podcast, episode 259. My name is Andrew Dunkley, and with me, as usual, is uh, the one and only Fred Watson, astronomer at large. Hello, Fred. Ta-da. Hi, Andrew. How are you doing? <laughs> still here, still at large. Well, actually, um, rather than a to rather than a ta-da, I can do this. <laughs> there you are. Very Welcome, good. Fred. Uh, thank you. It's nice to have a drum roll. <laughs> <laughs> Something different. Mm. Now, uh, coming up in this episode, we are going to um, announce a, a little bit of good news, uh, something that uh, might have slipped under the radar a bit, but uh, we're going to talk about it. Speaking of not slipping under the radar, unidentified aerial phenomena. The Pentagon's released its report into these incredible sightings that uh, somebody asked us about a few weeks ago and we gave our personal opinions of them. Well, now there are official opinions of them, so we'll talk about that. It's quite uh, an unusual story, as as you'd be aware, but um, uh, have they got answers? Well, no. Uh, uh, we're also going to look at 2,000 stars, all of them individually, one at a time uh, today, and these are stars where if there are intelligent beings, they could probably see us. Hi. Uh, and we'll answer some uh, questions. Actually, we're going to revisit something we talked about last week. We, we uh, For the cover of our um, uh, episode 258 podcast, uh, we put up a, a photo taken by airline pilot Mark Snelson of Noctilucent Clouds, and I did suggest that uh, in the photos you could see the curvature of the earth, and Fred um, you know, put that one to bed. Well, Mark's actually challenging that, so we're going to revisit it. Uh, and we've also got uh, 5,000 questions from Ashley in the United States. <laughs> uh, well, you know, it's it's one massive question broken down into five parts, plus he's got an idea for something we should put in the Space Nuts shop. So we'll investigate that as well. But um, first, Fred, I wanted to let you know I'm stuck at home at the moment because uh, Sydney's had a bit of a, a COVID outbreak and basically has been locked down, so I assume you're stuck at home. I'm stuck at home too, even though I don't live in Sydney, because I was there on the date of the cutoff of the COVID lockdown. So even though I'm now home, I have to lock down as well. So I'm doing my radio show from home. I'm doing the podcast from home. I'm doing my other job from home with the Salvation Army. Uh, it's just, um, yeah, like we're back to where we were over a year ago. It just feels so strange. Um, let me just put that in context, Andrew, <laughs> because yesterday I had an email from a friend and colleague, very very famous astronomer, Brian Gensler, who is the director of the David Dunlap Institute in Toronto, and he told me that they have just come out of seven months of lockdown in Toronto, and he was yes, saying he's been working from home since March 2020. He hasn't been into the office at all. Uh, so, um, you know, we're doing pretty well. Mm. <laughs> We've got a fortnight of lockdown I can put up with. That. Yeah, we, we are. We are. Um, my two boys in Sydney, Fred, have been working from home for over a year. Yeah. They were just starting to go back into the office a couple of days a week, and now... Back to, yep. back to working yep. from home. It is so fortunate that they've got jobs where they're able to do that, yes, though. Uh, right. So many people have lost their jobs, and uh, it's been very, very hard on on some individuals. So uh, certainly um, not counting our, um, yeah, not not dismissing that. It's it's a pretty serious situation. But uh, we, uh, yeah, once again, ran out of toilet paper. I don't, what is it? I don't understand what's going on with that. But anyway, nope, um, that that's either. the situation. I, I'll be here. I'll be here till uh, early next week, and then I, unless things change, I should be able to get back out into um, some sort of normality. So it's not a not a massive lockdown. This one, fingers crossed. Just depends on how the numbers go, I suppose, in, mm -hmm. in Sydney in terms of infection rate. But yeah, it just shows you how uh, nasty this um, Delta variant is. The way it's um, it's it's. Uh, it's been described as being able to spread fleetingly, uh, and I think they actually got on film 
um, two people walking past each other, yeah. one infected the other, yeah, yeah. and they weren't even within a metre and a half of each other, which is just extraordinary yeah. um, and terrifying all at the same time. Now, uh, Fred, uh, let's move on. You've got some good news uh, about the square kilometre array. Uh, indeed, I have, yes. the um, uh, A couple of days ago, in fact, yesterday, actually, uh, the 29th of June, uh, 2021, the SKA Observatory announced that it had officially approved the start of telescope construction in Australia and South Africa and outlined its 10-year funding schedule. So uh, remember, the SKA is uh, what, what will be the world's biggest telescope. Uh, the mid-frequency uh, dishes will be in South Africa. Uh, the low-frequency antennas, which look like Christmas trees, are in Western Australia. Uh, but there are many countries involved. At the moment, there are, there are seven nations uh, that have um, that, are, that are the current members of the SKA Observatory. But a further nine countries are expecting to uh, to participate. And on-the-ground construction uh, here in Australia is expected to begin early next year. So it's 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 big news. Uh, I'm going to illustrate it as well, it is. Uh, Andrew, for um, anyone who happens to be watching us on YouTube, because I'm holding up. Um, a Lego SKA antenna that was given to me by the then director of the project, Brian Boyle, back in, it's probably 10 years ago. Now, the final thing doesn't look anything like this Lego antenna, but it does say on it, uh, I think it says SKA on it somewhere. Um, indeed, it does, SKA. <laughs> and that's what it was meant to be. Isn't it, Dink? There you are. A Lego antenna. Everybody should have. Mm. It is. Oh, and it moves, uh, but the, <laughs> yeah. But as you say, they they've redesigned them. They don't. They won't look like that now. No, not 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 even the um, the mid frequency dishes in uh, in in South Africa look like that. They are a different design altogether from this. But they are dishes, whereas the ones in Australia um, are Christmas trees. One hundred thirty one thousand antennae. Yeah, it's extraordinary, isn't it? Yeah, Yeah, well, that's great news, and uh, yeah, it'll be a slow, sort of a slow burn in terms of the project being uh, finalised, but it'll be worth it when we are able to uh, solve all the mysteries of the universe in you know five seconds once they switch it on. Yeah, that's right. I'll be it. Uh, Right, let's move on to this other fascinating story, which has uh, received so much traction in the media, and uh, I, I. I think it is worth talking about again the unidentified aerial phenomena report from the Pentagon. Now, this this is to do with um, uh, the the sighting of 144 um, aerial vehicles uh, of some kind uh, over a period of years. And these have been spotted by civilian airline pilots and aircraft pilots and passengers and military, and. It, it was so uh, impossible to ignore. The Pentagon has, uh, has has been investigating this and they've now released a report into it, which um, I suppose most of the media, and rightly so, have said, well, you know, what are you telling us? Because you haven't, actu- haven't, haven't actually answered the question as to what these are, but they probably can't. They, they don't absolutely know, do they? They, they don't. Um, there has been some really good commentary on on this actually in the mm. in the media. There's a few websites that have really taken a, uh, I think, a pretty intelligent view of um, of what this is all about and uh, and what the U.S. government is trying to do. So just to clarify, those 144 reports are all from U.S. government sources. So most of them are a lot of them are military aircraft. In fact, I think a lot of them are actually Navy aircraft. Um, of those 144, 80 involved observation with multiple sensors. Uh, so that's interesting. Uh, most of them, um, most of the reports described uh, unidentified aerial phenomena as objects that inter- interrupted pre-planning training or other military activity. Uh, so it's you know it's it's really serious stuff. This it's not um, this is not based on hearsay or anything like that. These are genuine observations. Um, I, I was really interested to see um, that the report. Uh, which, by the way, is simply titled Preliminary Assessment, Unidentified Aerial Phenomena. It's from the Office of the Director of National Intelligence in the USA. Uh, The Mm. report includes a section describing um, the the difficulties with reporting this sort of thing because, um, you know, the, the, the... 
normally you can imagine a, 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 a jet fighter pilot coming back and saying, you should see what I saw today. Uh, everybody had just poured scorn on it. Um, and there's one of the sentences I thought was very interesting. Narratives from aviators in the operational community and analysts from the military and intelligence community describe disparagement associated with observing unidentified aerial phenomena, reporting it or attempting to discuss it with colleagues. And it's a really interesting point that they actually highlight that. Um, Why has the name changed from UFOs to UAP? Um, (laughs) But that's a good question too. And and maybe part of it is to do with what I've just said. You know, as soon as you mention UFOs, people think you've lost your marbles. Mm. Uh, Whereas... And, but a more, you know, perhaps a more serious aspect is that some of these things are not necessarily objects. The unidentified flying objects could be other things. And that leads me to the, the, the classifications that the report actually goes into. Five different classif, classif, uh, sorry, classes of, <coughs> of UAPs, unidentified aerial phenomena, starting with Airborne clutter, as they call it. Uh, These objects include birds, balloons, recreational unmanned aerial vehicles, or airborne debris, like plastic bags that model a scene and affect an operator's ability to identify true targets, such as enemy aircraft. Um, In fact, they've they've only highlighted one that has been proved as that sort of airborne clutter, and it was a deflating weather balloon uh, that that they mentioned in the report. So that's the first classification. Second is natural atmospheric phenomena. Uh, Includes ice crystals, moisture, thermal fluctuations that may register on some infrared and radar systems. Interesting stuff. Mm-hmm. Then there is uh, U.S. government or industry developmental programs. Some UAP observations could be attributable to developments and classified programs by U.S. entities. We were unable to confirm, however, that these systems accounted for any of the UAP reports we collected. Um, so, you know, they've asked around, are you doing anything top secret? No. Oh, no, no. <laughs> no nothing nothing no. to see here. <laughs> nothing like that. And then uh, um, classification four is really interesting. Foreign adversary systems. Some UAP may be technologies deployed by China, Russia, another nation, or a non-governmental entity. Um, However, um, later in the report, they kind of play that down because um, the – and it's certainly true, you know, if there were – these things that were capable of Mach 500 acceleration, uh, or sorry, 500 G acceleration. I beg your pardon. And very high speeds, well above this, 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 the speed, the sound, uh, speed of sound. They also uh, the reports of things that travel faster than the speed of sound without leaving a sonic boom. Uh, that sort of mm. technology takes decades to to develop, and um, there is nothing in the intelligence community that suggests that any other nation is doing this. Uh, and they also say, and even if they were, why would they, you know, whiz it around um, military training places, which is where a lot of these things have occurred and been seen. That might be, that could just be uh, a coincidence, but but it's, uh, it's more likely to be the fact that, um, you know, around military training bases, there are lots, of, there's lots of air traffic movement and that gives rise to lots of reports. Um, So, yeah, a really interesting idea. And then finally, the final classification is other. Um, Although, (laughs) and and what they say is, although most of the UAP described in our data set probably remain unidentified due to limited data or challenges to collection, processing, or analysis, we may require additional scientific knowledge to to successfully collect on and analyze and characterize some of them. We would group such objects in this category pending scientific advances that allow us to better understand them. The the UAPTF, that's the task force, intends to focus additional analysis on the small number of cases where a UAP appeared to display 
unusual flight characteristics or signature management. I love that, signature (laughs) management. Um, Disappearing, I guess that means. So, yeah, really, you you know, a really good attempt to classify all these things, to categorise them, uh, and a a, a worthwhile report, something that's worth um, actually worth having a look at. It's very easy to Mm. find on the web, the preliminary assessment of UAPs. It is, um, I should mention as well, basically a redacted version of a much longer report that went to Congress, which was secret. So the, there is more stuff, but this is the... That'll, that'll get the conspiracy theorists going. Of course, yeah, of course. But it's probably not that much more. I mean, they've told it like it is in this, and I think it's, yep. uh, I think it's a good thing to do. Yeah, and like you and I discussed before, we both were of the belief, and, and they have pointed out that it's very, very, very unlikely that we're being visited by aliens, uh, it's more likely to be some human creation and it could be multiple different, as they've categorised them, could be any combination or, or a natural phenomenon or phenomena. Um, my belief is that uh, with these extraordinary craft and the manoeuvres they've described, it's, it's, it's been made by humans and perhaps uh, the US military itself has developed uh, some kind of technology that, um, you know, they haven't let out of the bag, not even to their own people yet. It's, I, I think that's very possible. But, uh, and, yeah, it could be a foreign entity, which is also somewhat disturbing. But, um, look, we'll have to wait and see. There's, there's, uh, they can't keep it hidden forever would be my uh, feeling on it. But who, who knows, really? Who knows? Yeah, it's, yeah, Um uh, that's right. I, 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 th- I think that's right. You, you're probably right. Um, that's a fairly likely explanation, I think. Um, we we will wait and see. I mean, what's encouraging is that um, this task force is, is going to keep going with their research and uh, mm. hopefully they'll find something out. Yep. Well, fingers crossed. They've got 143 of them. They haven't been able to identify. Yes, that's right. So that's right. <laughs> that uh, in itself is is staggering, and that's only in recent years. This isn't going. This, you know, we're talking what since um, uh, in, this has all happened in, in the 2000s and beyond. So um, it's not some. You know, we're not going back to the 50s. We're not going back to Roswell. Uh, <laughs> this no, is all that's new. Right. That's right. Mm. Um, yeah, the, the, the most. Um, in fact, most of them are recent. So um, yeah. the, the take-home points are, first of all, unidentified aerial phenomena probably lack a single explanation, which we've gone into. There are five yep. categories. But they also make the point that they threaten flight safety and possibly national security. And, mm. you know, that's a pretty big statement to make uh, with a public document like this. Um, they say explaining UAP will require analytic collection and resource investment, so they want more money. <laughs> that's fair enough. Um, and, you know, that's that's basically the bottom line. They need to continue the work and, uh, and yeah. will do. Yeah. Um, I, I suppose I'm being a little bit uh, flippant here, but uh, once again, the photographs of these things, even, you know, despite the fact that we have such high-resolution, high-tech cameras these days, are still too fuzzy to identify anything. <laughs> yeah. But their speed might have something to do with that. And, and you know, the ones that we've seen, those uh, four videos, I think, that were released by the Pentagon of mm. things that can't be explained, um, they look fuzzy because they're, uh, I think they're infrared images, which often, you know, be- because you're measuring the heat from an object, often the, the object itself is heating up the region around it um so they often look fuzzy Uh, but some people have described that as an aura which is um a step too far uh because it's just you know it's the kind of characteristic thing that you might get with mid-range infrared detection Mm. all right we uh we watch and wait with interest and hope that uh some answers will be forthcoming you're listening to the space nuts podcast with andrew dunkley and fred watson Space Nuts. And hello to our patrons, the people that put a couple of bucks in our tin can every month to say thank you for producing the Space Nuts podcast and to enable us to keep producing the Space Nuts podcast. It's, it's, not, um, it's not cheap. Uh, it's, um, you know, everything costs money. Uh, and once you start to sort of build numbers with these sorts of things, there's 
all of a sudden these people coming out of the woodwork saying, oh, we can help you. <laughs> well, yeah, uh, and that costs money. And some of them do. Uh, you know, we've we found some good um, collaborators to help us out with the Space Nuts podcast in recent times and uh, setting up shops and, and getting things produced for the shop and, oh, gosh, uh, it's never-ending. But, uh, yeah, it's good fun too, though, and if you're a patron and you're putting some money into the tin to help us out, thank you so much. We we do very much uh, value your contribution. And if you would like to become a patron, you can go to our website and click on the supporter button and find out how to contribute. It uh, it is um, quite inexpensive. Starts at about um, four dollars fifty a month, but you can contribute whatever you want. It's up to you. SpaceNutsPodcast.com if you would like to look into that uh, and check out the shop while you're there. Now, Fred, uh, we are going to look at stars now. It's got nothing to do with Hollywood as usual, but uh, they have pinpointed uh, a bunch of stars, a couple of thousand of them, uh, that uh, may well, if they have uh, livable planets orbiting them with intelligent life, they could go, hey, look at that. That's Earth. Oh, my gosh, we can see Earth. I'm pretty sure they wouldn't say it that way, but you get my drift. I do. <laughs> They'd probably say it in a different language for a start. <laughs> yeah, I'd say so. Yeah, um, yeah. So this story, it's a, a quite a nice one. I think it's um, um, it's come actually out of Cornell University in Ithaca, New York, um, led by uh, a young lady called Lisa Kaltenegger, uh, and with other authors as well. What what this these scientists have done is ask the question exactly what you've just asked: which stars? could detect the planet Earth by the fact that it is, it tran- uh, from their vantage point, it transits across the disk of the sun. So uh, putting it a different way, what it means is uh, how many stars are there that are exactly in line with the plane of the Earth's orbit? Um, because, you, you know, it's only if you're looking pretty well along the plane of the Earth's orbit that you would see the Earth pass in front of the disk of the sun. If you're slightly too high above or slightly too far below, uh, you don't see it, Um, which is actually, from our perspective here on Earth, that's one of the drawbacks of the transit method of of discovering extrasolar planets. Um, but mm. you, So it means you only discover a fraction of the extrasolar planets that are out there. But as you know, from uh, Andrew, from our discussions, that's been by far the, the most productive way of discovering them. Uh, well over, th- well, we now know of over 4,000 extrasolar planets, of which about um, three quarters have been discovered by this transit method. Um, and what that tells you is that planets are commonplace, that probably every star has planets. Um, yeah, big big news. So okay, so turning it the other way around now, uh, what are the vantage points from which any aliens who happen to have uh, existed and, uh, and um, avoided our detection systems with their UFOs? Oh, I didn't say that. Uh, what are the vantage points from which any aliens could actually see the Earth transiting? Uh, and mm. what they've done is they've analysed star catalogues, and in fact, the best one now is produced by the Gaia spacecraft, European Space Agency's Gaia spacecraft, uh, which has mapped a billion stars. It's an astonishing project, uh, which we've talked about on a number of occasions, because not only is it able to map the positions of the stars with um, breathtaking accuracy, because you can do that, you can also detect the motion of the stars um, with similar accuracy because you can look at, look at a star twice and see how it's moved in between the two occasions. Um, it's because of this stunning, uh, basically, um, resolution of, the, of the, um, the directions that stars are lying in to within microarch seconds is, is putting it technically, which is a tiny, tiny angle. Um, and because you can measure them to that precision, then you only need to wait a few years, two or three years, before you can see them having moved, and that gives you the motion of that star through space. So mm. what the what these scientists have done is taken all this information and not only said what stars are in the plane, uh, you know, lie in the plane of the Earth's orbit now and can see the Earth uh, or would be able to see the Earth transiting. What stars could do that within, uh, have been able to do that within a period of 10,000 years? 
uh, centered on now. So 5,000 years in the past, 5,000 years in the future. Um, yep. Because these, because the stars move, you know, they, they cross the orbital plane of the Earth, extended way out into space, but they're only in it for a short time. And so that's why this they, they had to, you know, look at this uh, this period of um, of uh, of 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 not human history, but the history of the Earth. Five thousand years in the past, five thousand years in the future. And mm-hmm. to cut to the chase, they discovered. Now, where did I put the where did I put the final numbers? It's about two thousand, but they're broken down. Yeah. Um, so they've chosen ones that are within. Uh, Kind of within a, well, it's actually about three hundred and twenty-six light years of the Earth. That uh, yeah. that is a hundred parsecs, which is the uh, the the, the um, measurement unit that astronomers usually use uh, a parsec, which is three point two six light years. So within a hundred parsecs of Earth, uh, three hundred twenty-six light years, two thousand and forty-three have um, have the have the quality that within that 10,000 years I mentioned, they have this perfect viewing geometry. They look in the plane of the Earth's orbit. Um, now, uh, it's interesting that um, you can break it down into ones that are in the right location to have been able to see Earth in the past 5,000 years, and that turns out to be 1,715. And then there's an, another 319, which will come into view or they'll be able to see the Earth transiting within the next 5,000 years. Um, Of that 2,034 planets, uh, sorry, stars that uh, would be able to see the Earth transiting, how many of them are known already to have planets? Well, the answer is seven. (laughs) (laughs) It's not many. Um, But, of course, many of them, many of them uh, will also have worlds orbiting them um, because we know that pretty well all planet, all stars have planets around them um, yeah. and we will find some of them that are suitable for life. So it's, it's really, uh, you know, it's turning the question the other way around. Um, mm. how, how many stars can see us? And what it suggests is, and the, the reason for doing this is that these are, good places to look for alien, you know, what you might call alien uh, civilizations, but more especially to look for uh, planets, to look for biomarkers on those planets and perhaps techno-signatures on the on the planets as well. Uh, mm. So that is why uh, this work has been done. It's to identify future targets for the big telescopes that are coming on stream to really have a good look at these 2,000 stars just to see if there's anybody there, uh, because if there's anybody there, they will be able to see us. Yes, that's right. It's a two-way street, isn't it? Really, yeah. yeah. If they've got if they've got the um, intelligence and the technology uh, as we have, they yeah, we could just look at each other and wave to each other like Marvin the Martian in Looney Tunes, who just yeah. put his <laughs> telescope and it'd come right down onto Bugs Bunny's head. Yes, that's uh, right. <laughs> but uh, one of the candidates that's uh, looking quite promising uh, in the not too distant future is about what uh, about twenty fifty. This star will come into alignment. Uh, Tea Garden star. Yeah, and it will we'll be able to look at each other for 410 years. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. The one that I think is interesting. Um, uh, it's uh, it's down the track. There is one of the most interesting uh, systems of planets known to orbit other stars is the Trappist One. Uh, I knew you were going to say that. Yeah, <laughs> which has seven planets going around it, mm. all Earth-sized. And we've talked about this system before because they, they have resonances with one another, these planets. You know, they, uh, one goes around in twice in the orbital period of or three orbital periods of the other one. They've got these resonances. Um, but that will – it can't see Earth at the moment, the TRAPPIST-1 system. But in a year, three – 1,663, they'll be able to. So three, you know, a couple of, what is it, 1,600 years in the future, um, they'll be able to see uh, the Earth. They will know that the Earth is there. Yes, yes. Well, who knows what technology will be like then and what we're capable of. And mm, it, it would yeah, be a really fascinating time. I, I think we're in a fascinating time now for good and bad reasons. But, uh, 
Yeah, it's um, yeah. Who knows what's around the corner? You just uh, you never know what to expect when it comes to um, looking up into the into the ether and and gathering it all in. It's it is truly fascinating. But uh, yes, um, I, I suppose it'd be easy for people to find reports on these two thousand stars and maybe have a look at them themselves and see if they can get a wave. Yeah, exactly. Uh, it's easy to mm. find the, uh, the the research that's been done there, and it's had quite a bit of publicity as well, which is nice. Oh, yeah, yeah. Um, everybody loves a story like this one. Okay, um, maybe more on that in the in the future. A couple of thousand years in some cases. <laughs> uh, the- <laughs> yeah. We'll let you You'll- know. Don't worry. We'll let you know. Yeah, we will. Yeah, we'll, we'll, we'll get to that when, when the time comes. <laughs> This is the Space Nuts podcast with Professor Fred Watson and Andrew Dunkley. Three, two, one. Space Nuts. And hello to everybody who follows us on social media, uh, whether it's through the official Space Nuts Facebook page or maybe uh, the Space Nuts podcast group Facebook page, which was created by listeners so they can talk to each other. Uh, very much worth getting on to. Of course, uh, to our viewers on YouTube, thank you for supporting us. And uh, oh, we're on Twitter, we're on other stuff. <laughs> okay, I've got, it's a long list, but uh, you know, thanks for following us. Uh, it's nice to stay in touch. And uh, we do often get questions or comments through social media as well. It's hard to keep up because it comes from all angles and, you know, I'm one person and I uh, sometimes miss things, so I apologise for that. But I'd also like to send out a big thank you, Fred, to all the people who uh, have bought a copy and read and reviewed uh, The Hitler Paradox. Oh. I got my first uh, royalty check this week and uh, I could buy a couple of stamps now, so I'm really, really, <laughs> really excited. Good stuff. I think um, that you, you probably could relate to this, but um, in, in the publishing world, by the time you you know you write the story, you get it all you know made into a book form or whatever. Uh, by the time the uh, distributor gets their cut, the publisher gets their cut, the, um, the typesetters and editors and uh, bookshops get their discount. By the time all of that happens and you sell one book, you get about four bucks. So, <laughs> well, that's good. Actually, it's a t- spending what? It's a tough gig. Yeah, it's usually about you know ten percent, something like that of the. Yeah, setup. it's not much. Yeah. It's not much. But, um, that's the way it rolls. But uh, thank right. you to everyone who's uh, who's um, bought a copy of the Hitler Paradox. And it, if you could do me a favour, um, and it you know it's up to you totally. I wouldn't expect it. Uh, well, I just hope for it. Uh, please put your reviews online because um, that kind of helps. People uh, apparently, I, I heard, and I won't mention the platform, but one publishing platform that I've used um, basically doesn't sort of even look at you twice until you've had at least five hundred reviews on a book. I mean, how do you achieve that? <laughs> Unless you're a bestseller, it's just um, yeah. You'd have a lot of friends. Uh, that's very true. Or just make up a hundred fake accounts, but um, oh, no, you can't do that anymore. Not that I've ever done that. No. Uh, let's um, move along. Uh, question time, Fred. Uh, we're doing a follow-up uh, from um, something uh, we talked about last week. Uh, Mark Snelson, uh, airline pilot, sent us some amazing photos of noctilucent clouds that he took. And I, I kind of said something that turned out to be horribly inaccurate, that uh, I could see the curvature of the earth in his photographs. And, um, uh, well, you, you pretty well shot me down in flames. <laughs> But uh, we've got a, a follow-up um, email from Mark. Uh, he said, I just listened to uh, episode 258. Thanks for the mention and the cover pick. I feel privileged. Uh, now, it's just Space Nuts, Marcus. <laughs> Not important. Um, anyway, just as a sidebar, Fred's comment, read the curvature of the earth, has got me thinking about whether we see it in flight or not. He would, though, of course, know a lot more about camera optics than me. Uh, since we've been flying mainly freight, Uh, few or no passengers during the pandemic. We've been uh, flying higher because the aircraft is much lighter, often uh, 40,000 feet or above. I do feel we can see the curvature, only just, but I do think it's discernible from the cockpit. The noctilucent flight was at uh, either 40 or 41,000 feet. I didn't ever fly the Concorde, sadly, but this article, and he sent us a link, 
if you can be bothered, uh, is quite, and we did, uh, is quite interesting. Um, she could fly all the way up to 68,000 feet, according to Wikipedia. Uh, opinions seem split on the curvature thing. Anyway, thanks again. All the best, Mark. Uh, so, yeah, let's revisit it. Uh, he kind of feels he can see the curvature of the Earth from 40,000 feet and that uh, in the Concorde, well, yeah, maybe. Um, how high, how high do you have to be? I guess is the question. Yeah, uh, look, uh, it, it's such an interesting topic, and um, thanks very much to Mark for uh, f- you know for for making those comments and for um, sending us the, the the link to an article about the curvature of the Earth flying on Concorde, which is pretty easy mm. to find. It's on the Simple Flying website if people want to check it out. Um, yeah. Let me just clarify that the images that Mark sent us. The curvature that you can see of the horizon there is definitely due to camera optics, um, because uh, it's pr- it's pretty dramatic. It's quite it's pretty dramatic. dramatic That's so, right. Yeah. Um, but uh, I'm look. I'm willing to believe that at forty thousand feet, if you look carefully and discerningly out of the cockpit windows, where you've got a panoramic view, which you don't have as a passenger on these aircraft, True. Um, you might well be able to detect the the first signs of the curvature um as mark says the the article about uh, seeing curvature from concord up at 60000 feet uh it, it's uh, it, it basically is uh, an open question <clears throat> partly because um the uh, in fact I'm, I'm, i might just quote from uh, quote from this um the, the two points that it makes about uh people often reporting to see about 50% of the passengers reported to see the horizon curve. Mm. And uh, and first is but maybe the aircraft flew at just about the, the noticeable threshold for seeing it curve. But the second point is that the fact that you're, the windows on Concorde were tiny um, and you wouldn't actually see anything much of the horizon. So um, it probably from a single window, you wouldn't be able to see the curvature. Uh, so, uh, the, you know, the um, a nice article, uh, uh, which is um, it's by Nicholas Cummins, uh, published uh, actually last year, just uh, just about a year ago, uh, a very yeah. nice article that, that goes into it quite deeply. Um, so I'm prepared to believe that at 60,000 feet, you will be able, certainly will be able to see the curvature. Of course, um, the whole thing about space tourism is to send people up to 100 uh, kilometres, which Mm. is very, very much higher. Your 60,000 feet must be in the region of, let me do the sum in my head, Uh, it's it's sort of 20-ish kilometres, 24 or something like that. Uh, But at 100 kilometres, you definitely will be able to see the curvature of the Earth, um, which is one of the... Uh, appealing aspects of space tourism, that and the fact that you've got three minutes of um, of no gravity or weightlessness. Weightlessness, yeah. 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 Um, a personal note, um, I never flew on Concorde either, <laughs> but uh, I often used to find myself, this is when I was based in the UK, uh, uh, in a in a takeoff queue uh, on, a, on a very conventional jet, usually the shuttle between um, London and, and Edinburgh, um, often used to find myself behind a Concorde taking off. So you'd be wow. waiting uh, on the uh, on the runway. And, of course, you've got a view of the runway if you're in the right kind of window. And it was just staggering to watch. Um, mm. uh, and the noise was also staggering. It used had a to really pre- crackly sound, didn't it? It did when it – yes, that's right. Uh, but it, it produced this horrible – Orange smoke. Honestly, it was it was orange, and it was really really weird because there there were military engines that it was using. Yeah, um, yeah. I think they they had afterburners as well. I, I I think I can't remember. It's a mm. long time ago, but it was always really spectacular to watch a Concorde uh, taking off out of Heathrow. Really spectacular. I uh, remember some, yeah. when I was a kid, Fred, and uh, I was I was a, a scout. And one of the projects they gave me once was aircraft observation. And I had to spend time in my backyard every day recording aircraft that flew over, which turned out to be quite a nightmare because we lived near a military base. So I, <laughs> you do. Oh, not another, did, another one. Oh, Raj, Windjil, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Mackie. I mean, but there was uh, one time, and during that time, Concorde would, had visited Australia. 
uh, in the 70s. And uh, I, I, I was lying down in the backyard just watching the sky and I saw at a high altitude uh, a white Delta Wing aircraft oh, heading wow. northwest. Now, but I strongly believe it was the Concorde. But yeah. anyway, that's what I noted it as. Nobody disputed it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's great. No, it's, it was magical. It was such mm. a piece of engineering way ahead of its time oh yes and of um, course they're looking at bringing back the um the the, the uh, faster than sound um airliners there's a couple of companies experimenting with smaller versions of concord like aircraft so they may well make a comeback and of course speaking of observing the curvature of the earth when suborbital flight becomes normal yeah. And we can get from you know Sydney yep. to New York in two and a half yep. hours or whatever. Uh, yeah, that, you'll definitely you'll, see you'll it. definitely see it. That's right because um, uh, suborbital flight is just a slightly different version of what I was talking about—the space tourism suborbital mm. flight. Um, it, instead of taking off and landing in the same place, you take off and land in two different places. And yeah, you, you we will see that. Um, yeah. It, it it yeah of course the thing that killed Concorde was the the fact that it could only fly over the oceans because of the sonic boom that it produced. But the the companies you've just been referring to investigating future um, supersonic aircraft, they're looking at ways of mitigating uh, the sonic boom to make it something more like a sonic thud or something like that yeah, rather yes. than you know a, a distinct. And they're thing. talking they're talking incredible speeds with these, yes, these new yeah. aircraft too. Uh, which yeah, and test flights already have achieved uh, quite incredible results as far as I've heard um, with one or two of them. But um, yeah, we we watch with interest. But uh, Mark, thank you for bringing up the uh, the debate again, and it still remains debatable. <laughs> it's a great it's a great topic, and I appreciate Mark's um, you know sending in sending in his um, his link to the the article. Indeed. And now, let's move on to a, uh, an audio question. This one comes from young Ashley, and we've heard from Ashley before. Uh, Ashley's in the United States, and uh, Ashley's also a patron, so thank you, Ashley. And this is one question in at least five parts. <laughs> Hi, my name is Ashley, and I got a couple questions. So the first one is, if the Earth did not get swallowed by the sun when the sun became a supernova, would the Earth eventually stop spinning? Um, and also, how much longer does each day get? And um, what is the um, what planet spins the slowest? And um, how long is a light year in years? And when do you think people will will land on Mars? And um, also, one of my grandparents went to your speech. It's Fred Watson. Um, for this shop, I think you should add a Space Nuts bumper sticker that says, I am a Space Nut. <laughs> That is a great idea, actually, and I will put that to Hugh back in the uh, production studio and, and see if we can get I Am A Space Nut stickers. I think that is a fabulous idea. It would certainly get people asking questions. What What, what do you mean you're a space nut? Well, I know these two idiots. Uh, anyway, go on. Um, now, I, and I, I, just in case we forget about it later, but uh, I think Ashley said that uh, his grandparents went and saw you speak once, Fred, so that's that's lovely. Yeah, it is nice. Yeah, hmm. don't know where or when, but it was no. probably um, sometime during the arrival of the Mayflower. <laughs> you know, could have been. Um, that was a that was a great day. That great day. <laughs> <laughs> uh, let's start from the top. Uh, the effect on Earth if the sun went supernova, uh, and would the Earth stop spinning? Um, okay. Uh, first, Ashley, the uh, the sun won't turn into a supernova because it's not big enough. Uh, it, need, it would need to be a bigger star to do that. So it will swell up. Uh, it will become so big to swallow up the Earth, as you've suggested there, but it will do it quite gently, uh, not explosively. Uh, the, the end result, though, is the same. The Earth essentially does not survive that. Um, I think it would stop spinning. Um, basically, it would probably turn into a soggy blob uh, um, and the spin would 
you know, probably probably just cause it to, to disintegrate. So there wouldn't be anything left to spin. That's the, the bottom line. Okay. Um, okay, how much longer does each day get? Yeah, that's a great question. And it's about two thousandths of a second per day every hundred years. So uh, it doesn't sound like much, but if you didn't correct for it, which we do with leap seconds every now and again, uh, what would happen would be the the seasons would get out of step with the calendar. So you'd be celebrating the, the longest day of the year, the summer solstice in September or something like that, which is not not really very good. Um, we, we, the, um, we, we should point out that uh, you know, not too long ago in Earth history, people really had a lot of trouble with the calendar because they were operating on different calendars. Some of them just didn't line up with reality and they kept running into trouble. And then they all decided, well, all right, we all need to move over to the Gregorian calendar and we'll all be on the same page. And most did, some didn't. Russia was very slow. But uh, Sweden really botched it because they were going to do it uh, by deleting uh, leap days for a period of um, 12 years or 12 times or something. And war broke out, so they couldn't. <laughs> and they forgot to do a couple. And then at the end of the war, they went, oh, this is all too hard. So they put all the days back. And for the only time in history, in only one country, there was a February 30th. And then they didn't do it again for another 20 odd years, and they finally got, I think it was 1758 or something, they finally got around to it. Uh, <laughs> but this, this is the whole point. Um, trying to work out time back then and, and the, uh, the rotation of the earth and the timing and the years and the days, and it, it was pretty messed up and very well, confusing. Uh, what is astonishing, though, is the basis of our calendar, the Julian calendar, goes back to the days of Julius Caesar, mm. uh, a couple of thousand years ago, and he nearly got it right. Um, but the, there was this, exactly as you've said, there's this getting out of step with the seasons. And it was, uh, I think it was 1582 when the Gregorian calendar was introduced. Yes, yeah, something uh, on, like that. Only in the Catholic countries. And it took a long time for the Protestant countries to adopt it. It was 1752 in the United Kingdom. Uh, mm. So, you know, pretty late on. I didn't know that story about Sweden. I'll need to check yeah. that out because I'm quite interested in this stuff. Yeah, they had a February 30th. It's the only, yeah. day, only time in history because they needed to get back on track with the Julian calendar and then make the conversion yeah. sometime the down the track. Yes, but right. when they made the conversion, this is another beautiful story that's worth reading, uh, in the UK and other parts of the world, the, the conversion meant 11 days of the calendar had to be wiped out. So right. I think it became March the 1st and the previous day was like February 15 or something. Yeah, and it was a huge political issue. There was oh, a, yeah. Well, there was people, an election People that, yeah. of the time yeah. believed that the, the government had stolen 11 days of their lives. Give there us were back riots. 11 days. Yeah, there were riots. That's right. <laughs> oh, dear. Well, yeah. well, Go look learned. it up. It's amazing. And thanks for bringing that up, Ashley. Okay, we'll move on. Yeah, slowest what? slowest spinning planet, and uh, it is uh, it is actually Venus, uh, which takes two hundred and forty three days and twenty six minutes uh, to spin once on its axis. Uh, it might be yeah, twenty six minutes. That's right. So um, by far the slowest. Um, just the next one is Mercury, which is fifty eight days and fifteen and a half hours. Uh, that's not the same as their day length, though, because both those planets revolve around the sun in less time than the Earth takes to revolve around the sun. So the the day length and the, the spin length get mixed mm. up and it makes a mess. So we don't need to go there. Uh, but the answer to Ashley's question, it's Venus. 243 days, 26 minutes. There you are. Um, yeah. uh, how long is a light year in years? Now, I think I know where he's coming from with this, but... I'll, I'll throw that one back in your court for it. <laughs> well, well, so a light year is is a distance, not a time. Mm. Um, so, uh, and it turns out to be nine and a half trillion kilometers, which is very roughly six trillion miles. Um, that's its length. Um, so, six with twelve zeros are after it. It's quite quite a long a, a long distance. Um, right, it's, but it's not a time. It's just the distance that light travels in one year. That's why time's mixed up with it. He he may have meant how long is a light year in miles. So I think he might have done. Yes, would have done. Yes, have done. but yeah. Uh, yeah, it's it's a lot of noughts. 
It's a lot of noughts, that's right. Mm. Uh, and when when will people land on Mars? Uh, I was going to go there tomorrow, but um, you know, I haven't got any petrol. <laughs> I'm sure that petrol would do it, actually. It might, yeah, if you had enough of it and plenty of liquid oxygen as well. And, yeah. uh, you'll be right. Uh, <laughs> don't start your tour company quite yet, Andrew. <laughs> no. um, my guess is well, NASA's consistently forecast 2035 as the likely time. Um, and of course, when you think about these things, you've got to remember that there's only it's only every two years and what is it, two years and two months that the planets line up in such a way that you can make the trip. And uh, the last time mm. that happened was in July last year. So, so it's it's there's only certain periods when you can make the journey. Um, but my, you know, Elon wants to land them on Mars next year. Elon Musk. I think there's still too many problems to sort out with doing that. And I think um, I take NASA's forecast as being. Um, as being more likely. I'm, I'm exaggerating because I think Elon Musk's schedule is 2024 or something like that. I think it's at least another decade. Yeah, most um, likely. And, yeah, we should uh, – I'm, I'm, I hope your grandparents enjoyed my talk, uh, and I think it's a great idea to have uh, bumper stickers saying you're a space nut. <laughs> I think so too. I love it. I love yeah. it. Ashley, so good to hear from you. Thank you so much for sending in uh, uh, all those questions. I think Ashley demonstrates the enthusiasm that is astronomy, and, uh, you know, I, 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 I think it's fantastic. So thanks for uh, getting it, it in touch is. with us. Now, Fred, question without notice. Um, uh -huh. Next week is episode 260. Ah, Are we going yes. to do all questions? Well, if we can get Shall enough we? questions, yeah, I think we should. Yeah. <laughs> and that's where I'm going now because uh, we've run out, uh, more or less. So if you would like to ask us a question in audio or text format, go to our website, uh, spacenutspodcast.com. Click on the AMA link or button or just the letters. It's no button or there's no tabs or anything. I don't know why we do it that way. But anyway, it, it works. Uh, click on the AMA link and ask your question. If it's audio, uh, you need a device with a microphone, basically. Uh, so there could be a smartphone or a, or a tablet or a, um, you know, a laptop. They have microphones built in uh, or anything. As long as you've got a microphone, you can say who you are, where you're from, and ask your question. Or if you want to do it the old-fashioned way via email, you can do that. Can't believe we're calling that old fashioned now. Mm -hmm. uh, you can do that as well because we've got a text interface on the same tab on the AMA tab. So send us your questions. We'll um, we'll try and do a bunch of them next week. If we don't get enough, that's fine. We'll find topics. Uh, I'm sure something will happen in astronomy in the next week that we can talk about. <laughs> um, aliens attacking the United States West Coast. Oh, who knows? Yeah. Um, anyway, we'll we'll sort it all out next week with episode 260. Thank you, as always, Fred. It's been a great pleasure. Good to talk to you. Uh, my pleasure too, Andrew. Uh, and good luck to the Square Kilometre Array. <laughs> yes, indeed. Yes, the first nut and bolt will be cemented into the ground yeah. very, very soon. Next year, yeah. See you later. Thanks a lot. See you, Fred. Thanks a lot. Fred Watson, astronomer at large, part of the team here at the Space Nuts podcast. Hello to Hugh in the studio who puts it all together and puts it on Facebook and, well, no, I do that. Uh, but he does put it on uh, YouTube and all those other platforms. Uh, until next time, thanks for joining us here on Space Nuts. Bye-bye. Space Nuts. You've been listening to the Space Nuts podcast. Available at Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, iHeartRadio, or your favourite podcast player. You can also stream on demand at Bytes.com. This has been another quality podcast production from Bytes.com.